This is WPRB Princeton, community-supported independent radio. And now at five o'clock, it's news and culture. I'm your host, Adam Sanders. No two snowflakes are exactly alike. Have you ever checked though? It's been pretty snowy here in central New Jersey recently, and I'm honestly not sure. Twin snowflakes could be real. There are a lot more replications and doppelgangers in this world than I think we give Mother Nature credit for. Things reflect one another. Our world is built in a unique harmony where some pieces match and align just so, just perfectly enough to blur their distinctions. And it's transfixing to find something that matches you, someone that looks like you, someone that feels like you do, to study these reflections and consider your own image. So today on News & Culture, we talk about twins, stories about reflection, about unexpected likenesses, about the beauty of nature's symmetry, and about the fears that we may have, or we may not have, a doppelganger somewhere out there. First up, reporters Issa Escamilla and Reina Koulibaly learn more about twin flames and the astrological traditions of the perfect match. Long ago, the shape of each human being was completely round. They had four hands each, as many legs as hands, and two faces exactly alike on a rounded neck. In strength and power, they were terrible, and they tried to make an ascent to heaven as so to attack the gods. Zeus and the other gods couldn't wipe out the human race, so at last, Zeus had an idea. He cut those human beings in two, and since their natural form had been cut, each one longed for his other half. This, then, is the source of our desire to love each other. Love is born into every human being. It calls back the halves of our original nature together. It tries to make one out of two and heal the wound of human nature. Plato, Symposium. Hello, this is Reina. And I'm Isa, and that was one of the earliest quotes about the topic of today's episode, Twin Flames. And wow. Plato, Plato. Yeah. <laughs> Hearing that quote, I just was kind of struck by how romantic it is. Like this sense that you have another half out there. It just brings up a lot of curiosity in me in terms of like, where do they live or where would I meet them, you know? But it's kind of gory too. It's a little violent yeah. to think of just we were meant to be together and we were quite literally ripped apart from one yeah. another. The part about like, we would ascend to the heavens and <laughs> overcome the gods. That's very interesting to me. Like, I feel like if I were to find my twin flame out there, we'd be unstoppable. Yeah, so even though this is a very old philosophical text, this isn't really an overview of twin flames. It's more so just the origins. And now at this point with our modern understanding of astrology, we've come up with twin flames. Backtracking. Astrology? Yes. <laughs> For those of you listeners who might not have the best understanding of astrology, we have this chart. Everybody has one. It's called your natal chart. Mm. And in it, there's going to be the placements of where the planets were when you were born. Every single planet will be in one of the 12 signs. You can look those up, figure out your big three if you don't already know them off the top of your head. And maybe you'll find out a little more about yourself. The big idea that comes from that is that this is just a way to tell your personality, who you are. It's just 
our way of saying, hey, you can figure out who you are by the stars. The stars can tell you exactly what kind of person you are. This concept of astrology, it's like all of your signs are ascribed to different character traits. The convergence of all of these signs come together in who you are. And so for each of the 12 signs, uh, there's an opposite sign that's kind of going to be paired with them. And in that, that's where twin flames come in. I have an experience with a pseudo twin flame. I call this person my former soul friend. Um, they are an Aries, and we met my first year of school. And we were incredibly close off the bat. Like, we had so many things in common, and we, like, mirrored each other's personalities. They were energetic, where I was grounding and all these things. And unfortunately, our relationship ended pretty catastrophically. <laughs> That's kind of interesting because um, it brings up a point about twin flames that they're not actually necessarily going to be this super romantic concept of mm -hmm. like you're perfect somebody you know it's like it's going to be more this person is your exact opposite so even though your sons might have been opposites i don't know if your charts might have been exact you know mm -hmm. opposites so there's it's quite rare to actually find somebody who's your exact opposite in every planet yeah. every placement and when you combine all of that, you're going to get a person that might not necessarily be your lover, might not necessarily be the person that you're going to spend the rest of your life with, but more so your perfect complement, somebody who's going to make you grow and who you're going to make grow. I don't know if you've heard about this, but a lot of people, when they meet this, is they meet their twin flame. It feels like you immediately know who they are already. Mm. So it's kind of like that feeling of, whoa. I yeah. know this person. That's amazing. I wish I could have met my twin flame. I Maybe I will someday. I guess I'm one of those people in that eternal search, just like you are. And <laughs> today's episode, um, we have someone who is convinced that she has met her twin flame. This is Laura Vergara, a first year at Princeton University. She's pretty passionate about astrology, and after meeting her now best friend, she felt the need to compare their natal charts. The two were in complete opposition. Let's listen in to her twin flame story. A couple years ago, when I moved to this country, I met a friend, Jasmine, and we became pretty close in a short amount of time. Uh, we met each other in middle school, but we didn't really get to like actually become friends until we um, started high school together and we just kind of like joined this friend group together and ended up being the only ones to make it out of the friend group as still friends and in the middle of like getting to know each other and talking and stuff we started to bond and that came to us realizing that we shared a lot of like similar stories and similar backgrounds but not in the same way that most people do in, in the case of like sharing ethnicity or race or any sort of personal situations like that but rather the trauma that we shared and the sort of like understanding that we had, we just seemed to have a mutual understanding about where we stood and who we were and our goals, aspirations. And again, like the things that we had gone through and it was kind of like pretty insane to think about how many similarities we held in a way that was not very common. And I'm like fully convinced that we really are just twin flames and that we like have some sort of connection. We are still friends, we're still pretty close and we just have an understanding that most people just don't tend to have in the way that 
we don't have to talk every single day to still feel like we're connected to each other. We actually both really suck at the whole communication situation in, in terms of like texting each other or calling each other. But when we do come together, everything just seems to click and work. And it's honestly just like one of the most beautiful relationships that I've created with anyone. Our sophomore year of high school was both like for both of us, it was probably like the worst year that we had. Um, we were going through a lot. And we like one night stayed up until pretty late together, just talking and like sharing stories. Um, and there was a moment where we kind of just it clicked for both of us that like this was meant to be more than a friendship. And I mean that in like a totally like, platonic way. We just again, it just kind of like clicked and it kind of just made sense. And it just felt like we are we had some sort of connection where we understood each other without needing to say a whole lot. We understood each other's like boundaries, understood where each other like came from and it's led us to develop like a really like beautiful friendship that I just don't feel like I have with anybody else. And that's not to say that I don't like value the rest of my relationships with my friends and stuff. It just feels really different when it's with them. I don't know. I feel like the way we came to to understand each other went beyond just like the need for words. We kind of just click and without saying a whole lot, we, we just seem to like know each other really well. And it felt like it was really just meant to be, I guess. This has been Isa Escamilla and Reina Koulibaly for WPRB News and Culture. Next, we hear from reporters Alan Plotz and Ashley Olenkowitz about the research at the forefront of twin biology. I actually literally start with their embryos when they've split apart and I implant them into different uteruses. And then I follow those twins, those genetically identical individuals who don't even know they're twins because they've been in, put in different uteruses and grown up in different families. And I can kind of follow them over the course of their childhood and, and adulthood and really tease out nature and nurture. That was Princeton professor Dalton Conley describing his dream experiment. He's not a twin, he doesn't have twin children, but he does study twins. We've heard a lot about twins on a personal level, but what about their academic applications? Conley sat down with us here at WPRB to help us find out. For WPRB News and Culture, this is Ashley Olinkowitz and Alan Plotz genetics research over the past 50 plus years using twins is kind of like looking at shadows that are cast by these forces and trying to measure how long the shadows are. As tricky as that sounds, researchers have actually found a lot of ways to use these twin studies. Twins have been a kind of a, a workhorse for a lot of behavior genetics, genetics research over the past 50 plus years. And there are two basic kinds of twin studies. And Conley helped us break down the two different kinds of twin studies when we interviewed him. Um, one leverages the fact that monozygotic or identical twins um, share their entire genome, so they're, they're genetically identical, so then you can study the impact twin differences. There's a wide range of applications for this kind of twin study. We used identical twins and looked at their differences in birth weight to look at um, uh, there are differences in mortality, infant mortality as a way to sort of 
trying to understand the healthcare system. And so, for example, the um, twins, uh, twin, twin differences in birth weight do predict infant mortality, but they predict infant mortality much greater for black twins than for white twins by factoring out all the different possible prenatal factors. They've experienced the same uterus, so the same maternal behavior, they have the same genetics, and yet we're seeing that the consequence of this random difference in how much they weigh, because one twin was, you know, had a, got the front row seat to the placenta basically, and hogged all the resources versus the smaller twin, that random difference has much more dire consequences for black um, babies than for white babies. And that suggests to us that it's kind of like a, a, a lens into the disparities in the healthcare system, because it's pretty hard to come up with other explanations of what's going on. And we've ruled, we by, by virtue of ruling out prenatal environment and ruling out genetics differences, we can make a much more kind of strong claim about healthcare discrimination. Twin studies can almost work in the reverse as well. And then the other kind of twin study uses both monozygotic identical twins and same-sex uh, fraternal twins, dizygotic twins, and uh, differences out how similar they are to get a sense of the impact of nature and nurture, the impact of um, genetics uh, on, on, uh, in a population on a given outcome and the impact of environment on, the, on a given outcome. And we went digging to find some other examples of this kind of twin study. So we looked at whether or not actually how many cousins you have matters, like um, which would suggest there's competition for grandparental attention or aunts and uncles attention or whatever. We use the whether or not you have twins born in your cousin group is this kind of natural experiment of having a larger family. Because if we just compare small and large families, you know, they differ on, on all sorts of ways. Like, you know, large families tend to be more religious, they tend to be more rural. So having a natural experiment like, oh my God, I've got three kids instead of two uh, or three cousins instead of two um, helps us really understand that this is truly a causal effect. In these kinds of studies, twins can also help us understand the effects of genetics. For instance, in studies of twins and autism, researchers have found that identical twins are more likely to have autism than fraternal twins, suggesting a genetic component of autism. Even when twins get misclassified at birth, that is, when fraternal twins are labeled as identical twins, or identical twins are labeled as fraternal. When twins came out different birth weights, or dramatically different birth weights, they tended to think, oh, well, these can't be identical twins. Look at this. This one's a, a runt, and this one's like a massive football player. Researchers find ways to learn from these unique cases. I looked at th that kind of idea of these misclassified twins, twins who have had the social experience, the environmental experience, of being identical, but they're actually fraternal or vice versa, allows us to test this assumption, what's called the equal environments assumption, that it's not environmental differences that is driving the, the, the greater similarity of monozygotic or identical twins. And there are a wide range of fields that make use of twins too. Economics. One of the first papers in that domain was done by uh, Princeton economist Orly Ashenfelter. He actually sent research assistants to Twinsburg, Ohio for the annual uh, Twins Day Festival and did all these surveys of all the attendees. He and Cecilia Rouse, who now is the chair of Biden's Council of Economic Advisors, they wrote a paper that used the twin differences in education to understand the effect of education on wages. Psychology. Behavioral genetics. And that's a small subfield within psychology. 
even sociology, like Professor Conley mentioned in his research examples earlier? I mean, sociology is actually not even um, kind of at the top of the list in terms of twin studies. And where do scientists even find all this information about twins? As it turns out, the options and the data are pretty endless. That particular data set literally um, had every multiple birth in the United States during that um, per time period. So they're, they're called from birth records, basically birth certificates that are maintained by the 50 states and you know, District of Columbia, so that anytime there's a, 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 a multiple birth, you will say um, how many births uh, occurred in this, in, in this birth. So in other words, if I was a twin, it would say two births. If I was a triplet, it would say three births. Then they link those birth certificates to my twin or to my triplets. So we're able to clean a lot of information just from that, from birth certificates. That particular data set then uh, was a, looked at infant mortality. So it had actually death certificates as well. But Conley isn't without his qualms or at least alternatives to big data sets. In fact, there are even signs the heyday of twin studies is ending. Researchers are increasingly moving away from twins because we now can measure the DNA directly of individuals and are increasingly doing so in a number of studies. Now we can actually measure everybody's genome and we can just actually look at the genes that are influencing traits. Who knows what the future holds for the academic uses of twins? But regardless, twins have contributed so much to our understanding of the world, whether it's in economics, psychology, or just how much their parents love them. This has been WPRB News and Culture. WPRB wants you to know about the Attic Youth Center. The Attic Youth Center is Philadelphia's only organization exclusively dedicated to lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and questioning LGBTQ youth, and has served over 10,000 individuals in nearly 30 years of existence. Their mission is to create opportunities for youth to develop into healthy, independent, civic-minded adults within a safe, supportive community, and to promote the acceptance of LGBTQ youth in society. And they need your help. To find out how you can support their amazing work or get involved, please visit AtticYouthCenter.org. This has been a public service announcement from WPRB Princeton, community-supported independent radio. Hey artists, WPRV is conducting a search for artwork to put on our t-shirts, tote bags, stickers, and other premium items. From now until March 7th, submit your designs to the Art Drive by emailing them to art at wprb.com. That's art at wprb.com. You don't need to be a professional artist to submit something. Go to wprb.com art for examples of previous winning designs and more information on how to submit your art. One more time, that's art at wprb.com. Coming up, reporter Hannah Lee speaks to two Princeton students who share the same name, learning more about the experience of being a twin only on the page. Freshman year is full of trials, homesickness, transitioning to college life, learning how to do laundry. I'm Rachel Tran. I'm a freshman at Princeton. Rachel Chen, class of 2025 at Princeton University, has had to deal with an unusual challenge in addition to those. 
She shares her name with two other Rachel Chens on campus. We got to talk with two out of the three Rachel Chens at Princeton to find out what it's like to live with doppelgangers. There's two other Rachel Chans on ca campus who are undergraduates. One's a senior, one's a freshman. That was the sophomore Rachel Chen. Both of the Rachels knew that there were three Rachel Chans at Princeton, but it turns out that the two I talked with already knew each other. It was by chance I met the freshman because I was tutoring math. She happened to be one of my two T's. During one of our sessions, she came, uh, she came up to me and said, I have the same name as you. <laughs> I went to the Mass 103 study hall at McGraw, and like I noticed on her name tag that her name was also Rachel Chen. I thought it was funny, so I was like, "Is your name also Rachel Chen?" And then like after that like fateful incident, we like kept running into each other. Both Rachels agreed that there are some annoying complications that come out of sharing a first and last name. First, Miss Sorts our male. First is the campus building, where students receive mail. We have different mailbox numbers, but sometimes health insurance providers are not very good about um, addresses. They would put your home address instead of the mailbox number. So when they're sorting the mail, they don't know your mailbox number. So I they just... Maybe they just choose a random Rachel Chen and put it in. I'm not sure what happens. And I actually talked to them. I asked them if there was any way they could solve this. They were going to add my home address onto my records in their mm -hmm. system so that in the future they'd be able to sort it. And it was going really well until the start of this semester when I got another text from Rachel, um, the freshman Rachel, telling me she had my mail again, which is... A little sad so I think I might have to talk to Frist again. I've like gotten like at least five letters at once for her. It was funny because like I got seven letters but like only two of them were mine and the rest are Rachel's. Luckily knowing each other means the Rachel's can just swap their mail whenever they need to. However the problem extends to emailing too. It's really funny because I've gotten so many class emails and advising emails for other Rachels, not just Rachel Chen's, even like another Rachel with a different last name. Oh, really? Yeah. And I don't know how that happens. There's just a million Rachels on campus. If you type in Rachel Chen, three Rachel Chen's will come up. Mm -hmm. And how do you know which one is the actual Rachel Chen? My writing STEM professor, my RCA, my PAA friends also, they all like sent emails to the wrong person. <laughs> I did not know we were supposed to be receiving emails. Mm. Like in the summer before like moving. So I was kind of kept out of the loop because of that mishap. My writing STEM professor, mm -hmm. she created a Google shared drive and um, added everyone into it. So like we showed up in class one day and she was like open up the drives and I was like really confused because I didn't see any drive. It wasn't in my shared or anything. And then I figured that it must have like gone to the wrong Rachel Chen. <laughs> and then from there on, I like, for like draft workshops and stuff, I would like <laughs> write my actual email in like the group meeting so that my classmates would know which email to send it to. 
now I make sure to, for example, during classes and stuff like that, if I need to have like classmates or professors email me, I tend to like just include my actual email address just to make sure that the mishaps don't happen. While these problems certainly aren't catastrophic, it's clear that sharing a name as college students becomes quite the hassle. I was curious whether either of the Rachels had considered using a middle name. I do have a middle name. Um, it's like the anglicized version of the Chinese name my parents gave me. I actually am very careful about that because I put all my middle name on all my legal documents. For the most part, it's worked out. Things only become a problem when they don't request it and there's no place to put a middle name or middle initial. I don't have a middle name. It isn't all bad all the time, though. The Rachels take full advantage of the pranking potential in having a shared name. It's actually really great knowing the other Rachel Chen uh, because whenever we're walking together, we can ask friends that are not mutual friends what mm. they think the other person's name is. It's always really funny. <laughs> He's just because, going tricking people. Yeah, we, not tricking. <laughs> we're, we ask them, what do you think her name is? And then you definitely know her name. <laughs> and people are so confused. Oh, you're terrible. <laughs> it's really funny. Um, so we like doing that a lot. It seems that, overall, both Rachels are fine with sharing a name, especially with a good friend. Being, like... In contact with the other Rachel Chen has been able to help me through this process a lot because like rather than thinking of it like as something that's confusing or like overwhelming or like just like it's hard to get through by myself it's like more funny now because I could joke about it with the other Rachel Chen and we could like get through it together. I don't think anything disastrous has happened yet it's just kind of it's it's just a, a bit of an inconvenience but I like my name. I don't think I would ever change it to something else. I don't want to change anything about the names because I feel like names are really like what makes up what who we are and our a big part of our identity. But um, maybe there could be like some better sort of identification. I'm not sure what what exactly that identification be though. <laughs> It takes a long time for any changes to be made at Princeton. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> I think students here are all aware of that. Staff here are probably also <laughs> aware of that. So I think the best way to start off is just to work out smaller problems directly with the groups that can help. For example, with FRIST, we can definitely work with the mail mailing mm -hmm. team just so we can sort out the addresses and people get the right mail. Other things we can probably save for the future.
This has been Hannah Lee from WPRB News and Culture. In our second to last segment of the day, I speak with researcher Adam Golub on why twins and doppelgangers have for so long been a fixture of our horror culture. I think when many people think about twins, one of the first images that comes to mind is from Stanley Kubrick's classic horror film, The Shining. Two young girls in identical dress, in front of a long corridor, speaking in unison. Come play with us. There is something that scares us about this idea of replication. Of twins, but also of doppelgangers. Of reflections that feel unnatural. Today on News & Culture, as we explore stories about shared likenesses, I speak to someone who's an expert on this cultural fear of the twin. My name is Adam Golub. I'm a professor of American studies at California State University Fullerton, where I teach courses on literature, popular culture, music, and monsters. And I'm currently working on a uh, full-length book project that examines the cultural history of the doppelganger in uh, American culture. I want to make this clear. Professor Golub is not a researcher of twin studies. But I'm interested in the phenomenon of a second self that is uh, uh, kind of um, haunting you in some kind of way, makes its presence known. And there's a long history of this in the United States and in, in literature and in folklore and popular culture. And it even precedes the U.S. in Europe. And in fact, many cultures have, have uh, stories about uh, twins and doubles uh, in, their, in their kind of cosmology, in their art, in their, uh, in their stories. Professor Golub assured me that twins have been scary in America long before Stanley Kubrick even thought about The Shining. A lot of this starts in the 19th century. It begins uh, in the decades leading up to the Civil War. Edgar Allan Poe is the first American writer to have a, a kind of a full-length full short story that features a doppelganger. It's called William Wilson. It's published in 1839, and it's the story of a young man who leads this kind of dissolute, immoral life. And every time he's trying to do something bad and get away with it, his double shows up, his doppelganger shows up and foils his efforts to do some kind of immoral act. In fact, a major part of Golub's theory is that fear of the doppelganger and of the twin is a cyclical phenomenon. And then you have these kind of cycles throughout history of these, these peaks of popularity with the doppelganger. And I think we're in one right now, which we can, you know, we can certainly talk about. I, I think three things tend to be happening when the doppelganger becomes a popular figure. First of all, it speaks to questions of identity, right? Like moments when uh, identity is thrown into question, when our identity seems to be more fragmented, when we have new understandings of, of consciousness, of, of who we are. These are related to these kind of new stories about the doppelganger as a fragmented self. Second, doppelganger stories tend to uh, really leap in popularity when there are new technologies of duplication that have been invented. And by the way, these technologies of duplication, another peak 
early motion pictures and film. Uh, this is another moment when we start to see doppelgangers turning up. And then you've got in the 1950s, there's another kind of spike of doppelgangers, especially alien doppelgangers, invader doppelgangers, body snatchers. And this also, you know, we have to think about television. And this impact of new technologies onto the fear of doppelgangers and the fear of twins is not a phenomenon that stopped. We live multiple online versions of ourselves today. Our technology's ability to make multiple doubles, multiple replicants, um, seems to kind of get us thinking about what if we ourselves were duplicated in some kind of way. Golub's third cause for the cyclical fascination with doppelgangers national unrest. When the body politic is especially divided. Think about the decades leading up to the Civil War, North and South, right? This kind of um, America's shadow self. You also see this again in the, in the progressive era when you've got motion pictures on the rise. You have an influx of immigration. Um, you have, you know, reconstruction and, and uh, freed slaves. And you have this kind of moment when the culture is trying to assimilate um, a much broader diversity into its national identity, but that's also creating kinds of dilemmas about cohesion and what does it mean to be unified. Or all those alien doubles I was talking about, us versus them. Is there a communist living next door to me, right? Is there a communist um, um, that I married? And then of course, I think it goes without saying that today in the era of, of, of Obama, Trump, and Biden, we have a deeply divided America. There's this kind of red state, blue state, almost Jekyll and Hyde, right? Where one side you know, is, sees the other and they seem unrecognizable to them, familiar but strange. Beyond the historical causes, I asked Professor Golub what he thought about any psychological motivations for the fear of the doppelganger or the fear of the twin. There were new understandings of consciousness in the 1800s, you know, this idea of a, of a kind of person who could have a, um, a divided personality, could have a, a sleepwalking personality, a what they called a mental alien. You were alienated from your own self. And this was new discussions within criminology and psychology about a, a secret consciousness you couldn't quite understand or control. And if you've got Freud talking about this, you've got um, you've got Jung talking about this. You've got Otto Rank is another psychologist who writes about the doppelganger at, at length and influences Freud's thinking about this. But research into fear of doppelgangers from a psychological viewpoint didn't stop with Jung or Freud. Researchers have studied accounts of people who have autoscopic hallucinations. They believe that they see themselves in the external world. As our conversation drew to a close, I asked Professor Golub what I thought was probably the most important question for this interview, what his favorite pieces of twin-related horror media were. I love Us. I mean, I teach Us in my Monsters class, and, and there's just so much to think about with that film, because it is in many ways about um, an uprising, about a revolution, and it's about replacement, right? That there's, I mean, talk about the divided body politic, that there's a version of ourselves that has been repressed or denied or marginalized that... Um, wants to come and take its due, so to speak. Apart from the 2019 Jordan Peele horror flick, Professor Golub had some historical answers too. One story that has taken on a life of its own ever since it first appeared in uh, the 1850s is a story about a Latvian school teacher named Emily Saji. All these students in her class would report and could, could verify that while their teacher was teaching, the teacher's doppelganger came into the room. Like if she was kind of at the board writing on the chalkboard, 
the doppelganger would walk in, stand behind her and kind of mimic her actions. There were stories of, of Emily Saji's doppelganger um, appearing behind her in, at, at the lunch table um, or being spotted in one place when the students knew the teacher was in another place. Yet due to a retraction from the author, the story of Emily Saji can't be found in print very often anymore. In the second edition and every edition afterwards, he pulled that story. He deleted it and he said, it turns out I can't really verify it. And so, you know, it, it was gone, but it was too late. That story was released into the culture. We love it. And it's just constantly out there, in a sense, duplicating itself over time. Now, I'll just add one more point. I'm a big fan of alien doppelganger stories. Uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers is a true classic. And uh, especially in the context of the 1950s, a second self emerges that is uh, kind of less emotional, less expressive, um, is more kind of uh, social in terms of conforming to a larger group agenda. And essentially, you're, you're this fear of, of individuality replaced by conformity. It also speaks to broader concerns about subversion and the enemy within. This comment from Professor Golub about body snatchers reminded me of a question that's been haunting me for a very long time. See, my roommate here at college, he's a twin. Should I be scared of him? Uh, I don't think you should feel trepidation. I myself have uh, twin sisters. I have younger sisters who are identical twins. Um, and uh, so I, I've, I've grown up with, with twins. Perhaps that's part of my interest in this topic. I think your bigger concern, Adam, would be if you happen to see your own double walk into the room one night, you want to beware. Because in some, in some folklore systems, seeing your double is a, is a premonition of death. Your doppelganger is never just there to kind of chill out with you on the couch and watch TV. They want something, right? They, they want to replace you. They want to eliminate you, they want to steal your identity, um, they're rarely there to just join you because at the end of the day, there can only be one of you. But as for your roommate, I think, I think you have no concerns there. Well, I guess that was a reassuring answer in some regards. For WPRB News and Culture, this has been Adam Sanders. WPRB wants you to know, don't let your waste trash New Jersey's waters. If you leave it on the ground, chances are the rain will wash it into our streams, lakes, and the ocean. By following a few simple rules, you can help make the water you drink, swim, and fish in cleaner. Don't dump anything into storm drains. The rain carries litter and other waste through the storm drains and into our waterways, so don't let her. Follow directions for applying pesticides and fertilizers. Properly dispose of household hazardous waste, such as oil, bleach, and ammonia. And always pick up after your pet. Help protect the environment and our natural resources. Clean water. It's up to you, New Jersey. Sponsored by the New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection, the New Jersey Broadcasters Association, the Montgomery Township Green Team, and this station. For more information, log on to www.cleanwaternj.org. Again, go to cleanwaternj.org for more information. This has been a public service announcement from WPRB Princeton, community-supported independent radio.
And finally, our own WPRB News & Culture twin reporters, Clara and Charlie McWeeny, speak to members of their own family about the experience of life among twins. Hi, I'm Clara. And I'm Charlie. And we are, among other things, twins. Admittedly, when the theme for this episode was first pitched, Claire and I pretty much demanded our own segment. It felt justified at the time. We really are twins, after all. And I'm sure, by this point in the episode, you've heard your fair share of philosophical musings on doubles. Twin flames, doppelgangers, etc. Charlie and I, though, are lifelong experts. Since birth, even. From when we were first born, and I needed a few extra days in the hospital to develop even larger lungs, and Clara came down with the cold to stay with me, to going to the same college, we've always known what it's like to be a twin. But, after hours of fruitless brainstorming, we realized that an outsider's view on our relationship may be beneficial. With distance comes perspective, and our first two guests certainly have a lot of perspective. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Hi, guys. Hi. What's up? Hello. How are you guys doing? We miss you guys. It's good, good to see you. How are you? Nice to see you. It's been a while. Yeah, it's been a real while. The two voices you just heard are two younger siblings who we haven't seen since January. A real while, as Nico said. I'm Nico and Lucy McQueen. I'm Lucy. Yeah, well, we're not, you know the twins' siblings, younger yeah. siblings. Lucy is 16 and a sophomore in high school. Nico is 10 and in fourth grade, though sometimes we think that he's 30. At first, our twindom seems to have little impact on our two younger siblings. I would say we just, we have older siblings and they happen to be twins. Yeah, I would say so. More so, yeah. I'm not even twins, they just happen to be the same age. So true. When we asked them about the downsides to having twins as older siblings, though, Lucy had some thoughts. Many thoughts, actually. Especially being, I mean, maybe this is for all siblings of twins, but especially being younger siblings of twins. Oh, yeah. Oh, it can yeah. be hard because they take up a lot of space. Yes, foo, shoo, tell me about it. They're just always, because, like, you guys are always, like, together. Always but together. But when you're apart, you so it, like, Yeah, and know? I think, I think part of it is because, like, you're both kind of older siblings, and the oldest sibling is always taking up the most space, and so not like but since double that. Two, yeah, double that. Yeah, yeah, which can be tough for us, for us little guys. Yeah, you know, we it's hard to stick up for ourselves yeah. in this in this world of older twins. Mm -hmm. At risk of incriminating ourselves on air, Lucy has a fair point. It's well within the realm of possibility that we have ganged it up on our younger siblings once or twice, but that's what it means to have siblings, right? Their answers were a bit slower to come when we asked them about some of the upsides to twin adjacency. There are good parts. Yeah, I mean, some good parts. Can you think of any? I mean, um... It's nice. Ideas? Yeah. Um, um... I think, I mean, maybe it's just because I just don't think I could imagine... I, mean, I would like you them. guys on your own. We'll take that. I guess. At this point in the interview, Nico, always the empath, decides to imagine a world in which he was a twin. No, but it's just like someone else you age, like doing the same things that like you're doing. And I don't know, it's probably different for you guys. Like for my age, that just sounds like awful. It probably is different at our age, but Nico's not entirely wrong. It can be hard. 
It's almost like there are no excuses. We've had, for the most part, identical upbringings and opportunities. When we make mistakes or when one of us fails and the other succeeds, there's nothing to fall back on. The direct comparison, in my experience, is both entirely motivating and entirely exhausting. Growing up, it seemed like our parents always expected more from us, as if some twin synergios should make the two of us more than just the sum of the individuals. Lucy shared her thoughts too, though not without interruption. As I've gotten older, I've realized I really would not want to have a twin. But I, when I was when I was younger, I think yeah. I definitely I wish I had like someone that was like a year older than me or a year younger than me. Okay. Well, yeah, what I was going to say. Sorry. Yeah, thank you. Um when I was younger, I think I definitely I definitely wanted a twin more because like I felt a little, a little excluded, a little isolated. I'll admit it. Having you guys were twins, and like even when Nico was born, he's so, so little. We just couldn't really, couldn't talk, you know. Um, and so I think that was, that was tough for me because you guys had this little special bond. This special bond isn't all positive, though. I'm just like, like I was like, oh, I have a twin. Maybe I know they're twin. Maybe I don't. Maybe I'm friends with their twin, maybe I'm not. Yeah, I you would know? say people who have twins are, like, definitely a little they're more... They're different. They're, like, different. They're different. Well, they're, like... They're different. That's not what I was going to say, so please. They're, like, defined sometimes by who their twin is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, when I think of a person who has a twin, I'm like, oh, yeah, this person, and then I immediately think they're twin. Soon, Nico and Lucy seemed to get tired of talking about just us, which was fair. The conversation shifted in a direction that we didn't quite see coming. Their own twindom, despite their five-year age difference. Like, it's like we're twins, but just different ages, you know? Yeah, yeah, I like that. Then, Nico and Lucy brought up a phrase that we'd never heard before, but seemed to sum up their relationship nicely. Like, part of being a fake twin is, like, having to come together like you kind of created that bond yeah. almost but when you're twins that bond is already in place no, yeah and then nico and lucy said something that while touching was a bit hard to hear i mean we've yeah. gone a lot closer since you guys left. yeah for sure none no one else really to... and look how close we're sitting i mean yeah and but they can't really see but we're sitting pretty close oh yeah we're sitting pretty close you can't see but they were sitting close perched on the same chair at lucy's desk Lucy's statement couldn't help but make us wonder if our own, sometimes overpowering twinness has prevented our younger siblings from becoming close themselves. It was only in our absence that they seemed to really develop this bond. Nico, though, left us with some comforting words. Like the emotional bond from like always doing the same thing together, like living the same experiences, and like, but also being good friends while doing that. He's right. This is what it means to be a twin, fake or not living the same, or at least similar experiences, but also being good friends while doing it. For WPRB News and Culture, this has been Charlie McQueenie. And Clara McQueenie. And that's our show. News and Culture is produced at the WPRB studio in picture-perfect Princeton, New Jersey. I'm your host and the show's director, Adam Sanders. Tonight's show was reported, recorded, and produced by Issa Escamilla, Reina Koulibaly, Alan Plotz, 
Ashley Olenkowitz, Hannah Lee, Clara McWeenie, Charlie McWeenie, Anna Salvatore, and yours truly, Adam Sanders. Our art and social media director is Issa Escamilla. Our director emeritus and technical advisor is Oliver Wang. The theme music for our show is Montanita by Raditat. News and Culture is produced in Princeton, New Jersey by WPRB Princeton, community-supported independent radio. Take care and enjoy your evening.